Um, last weekend, you may have noticed that a big chunk of us were all away at a board retreat. Oh, this is the wrong way. And uh, it, we really thank you for your prayers. It was a, a really, really good time, you know, surfing and almost losing shorts aside. Uh, we, we had a really good time. Uh, we discussed a lot of things, and, and I'm going to inform you of some of those in the coming weeks a little bit as we lead up to our annual meeting. But uh, Shayla and I were on holidays this week. It, when I say that, I mean we were here. We just didn't work this week. Um, and so I have not prepared and processed how to explain some of those things to you yet. So that'll come in the next couple of weeks as we look forward to the annual meeting. But really, thank you uh, for your prayers. Uh, we had just a tremendous time. Um, and, and special thanks to McLean's for hosting it. The other thing, uh, so immediately after this, now people asked me what time the baptism is at, and if you've asked that, clearly you think I pay way more attention to the clock when I preach. Uh, I do not, so I don't know. When we stop, that's when we'll go, uh, and, and I would encourage you, as Ernie mentioned, find somebody to carpool with. Uh, if you don't know where it is and you'd like to join us, if you're visiting and you'd like to join us for the baptism, you're welcome to. No obligation, of course, uh, for that. But if you'd like to, just, just hop in someone's car and make a friend. And they'll, tell, they'll take you down and they'll give you the whole history. No, I'm just kidding. They won't do that. But uh, they'll take you down and bring you back. And then we'll have lunch here together afterwards. Uh, we, I preached a few weeks ago on baptism, what it means, what it represents, and how it's a command of Christ. And, and so Lorena said to me, man, well, she had said this before, I actually even preached on, she said, it's time, I need to get baptized. And so we don't have a baptism tank here, so we have to wait until the water is at least above zero. And so we waited until the end of August, hoping that summer would come. So we're going to head down for that. But uh, that doesn't mean only Lorena has to be baptized. Uh, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and, and you've had it on your mind, or, or perhaps even just this morning, uh, been challenged to go, man, I, I need to be faithful in that step of obedience. We would love to, to help you with that. Now, I know you're going to say, but I didn't bring any extra clothes. That's okay. Just come back wet. You'll be a lot warmer in here than outside. Uh, one time, Shayla and I, back in our old church, we had a baptism uh, originally of about two or three people, and there ended up being about 12. And, and there were people in the church that just were like, I just, I got to be faithful to Jesus. And they just ended up sitting the rest of the service, because how we did it then was baptism, and then the sermon, and they just sat in the pews, just soaking wet. And uh, it was probably the coolest and most memorable experience uh, that I had at that time. So if you would like to be baptized, if, if God's pushing you in that way, then when we get down, or either, even before we leave here, you can just come uh, chat with me real quick, or when we're down at Cascade Ponds, feel free to do that as well. Uh, we just want to be faithful to what God has called us to do, and we think baptism is part of that. Okay, uh, Matthew 5. We're going to look at verses 13 and 20, but just a real quick recap. We just started this last week, uh, and we looked at the Beatitudes, and I reminded you that there's a great series on Right Now Media from Matt Chandler, uh, an eight-week series or eight-part series, about 10 minutes each, dealing with each of these Beatitudes. And uh, we did not spend nearly that much time in there, but I would encourage you to do that. But the, the basis of it all is this. These things that we read, like blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who meek, sometimes those beginning ones are not things that we generally think of in a positive way. But yet, Jesus is saying, 
over the course of your life, as you learn to follow Jesus more and more, this is the type of person that you're going to become. The Holy Spirit is going to bring this about in you. And so as we read those, and then there's some more obvious ones, like the merciful, uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, that this is how God's going to take our hearts and our minds, and he's going to bring us to becoming like this type of person, someone who lives solely for God and that the world is not the primary concern. And if we're honest, the world has a real big draw to us. The world has a lot of great stuff, and it can be very easy to lose focus on God and forget that Jesus never says, blessed are the wealthy, or blessed are those who have a great job, or blessed, you know, all those things that we kind of aspire to on this earth. But he says, blessed are you when you follow after Christ. And so that's the kind of people that we want to be, and that kind of sets the table moving forward. So we're going to go through chapters 5, 6, and 7 from now until Christmas, hopefully. We'll get through that. Uh, And this morning, we're just going to look at a few verses, but the first 13, 14, and 15, and 16, excuse me, are going to clarify why we're blessed if we live this certain way that we talked about last time. And then we're going to get to 17 to 20. And I would argue that verses 17 to 20 are perhaps some of the most important verses in Scripture to understand correctly. If we don't understand them correctly, it gives us a confused understanding of what the Old Testament is and what the New Testament is and how they harmonize together. You probably heard people say many times that like there's the Old Testament, the New Testament, and they almost seem irrelevant from one another, or they're so opposite to one another. But actually, as you read through Scripture over and over again, what you see is a harmony, God showing uh, a fulfillment of what he had promised, and, and we're going to talk about that very specifically because I think there's some very significant theological implications for how we interpret the Old Testament based on these verses at the end. So, let's read really quickly these verses 13 to 20 of chapter 5. It says this, uh, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine for others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Last time we started um, by talking about some of the similarities between the book of Matthew, how Matthew has written his gospel, and the first five books of the Bible, called the Pentateuch or the Torah. Uh, Basically, it means the law. And Matthew's trying very specifically to show that the Old Testament, specifically the law, those first five books, that he's patterning everything after that to say, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who was to come and was going to fulfill all the promises that God gave. 
And so we're going to talk about that off and on over the coming weeks. Uh, And Jesus is going to be compared to Moses in some regards. And I'm going to explain uh, some of those things. But as we read these verses, uh, like I said, they have implications theologically all through Scripture. And so uh, theologian Craig Bloomberg says this. In light of the countercultural perspectives enunciated in the Beatitudes... It would be easy for us to assume that Jesus was calling his followers to a separatistic or a quasi-monastic lifestyle. But here, Jesus proclaims precisely the opposite. Christians must permeate society as agents of redemption. I want to read that last sentence because I think that's crucial. Christians must permeate society as agents of redemption. Is we're not called to read scripture, understand scripture, and then go and spend time just all by ourselves in isolation saying, the world is this awful place. I got to separate myself there and I just got to pray. Yes, you have to pray. Absolutely. But clearly Jesus teaches us here that your role as a Christian now is to go out and to spread this good news, to permeate every fabric of society. And so I think there's, there's good news that, but there's also some very difficult challenges with that. We've seen over the course of history moments where uh, Christian principles and Christian living have, have really radically changed the way in which we live. And we call those revivals that have happened. And there have been great revivals in Europe and in in America. There have been places uh, and times where our laws have been set really based on what scripture says. But in our own time right now, we find ourselves kind of on the opposite end of that cycle. And so it can be very overwhelming to be like, man, how, how am I supposed to permeate all of society for the name of Jesus? That's a big question, but I think sometimes the big questions need just little answers. When Shayla and I began the process of adoption, is, uh, we had this little t-shirt fundraiser, and, uh, and the t-shirt said, I, I forget the exact number uh, at that point, but it said, how do you... Um, how do you save a million orphans? And the answer was said, one at a time. And that's the same of permeating society with the gospel. How do we do that? One conversation at a time. It's not about going in front of thousands of people and trying to declare something, though God may give some that opportunity. It's about becoming this type of person that we read about last time and then walking into the world that we have influence on. So maybe that's your workplace. Maybe that's your immediate family. Maybe that's your friends. Maybe that's the people that you live with. Whoever it is, is we're called to permeate society with that. And so Jesus gives us kind of two analogies of how we could do that. And both of these are very, very practical analogies for the culture at that time. But I think both of these are things that we take a little bit for granted, at least now. So the first thing he says is, you are the salt of the earth. What do we think of when we think of salt? What's its purpose? To bring flavor to things, right? Now, that's certainly what's in mind here, but in ancient times, what was the primary use of salt? Yeah, preserved, to prevent decay. And so, now don't get too hung up on the metaphor here because all metaphors break down at some point. But Jesus is trying to say, look, salt has purpose and meaning. And and so, I mean, you could get cheesy and you could say, you need to go flavor the world with Jesus. Okay, well, that's maybe a very Sunday school thing we might say. That's not quite the idea. Well, maybe it is, but um, think of it more in the sense of 
is your call to go and, and stand out and be different in the world that you find yourself in. And then James says uh, in James chapter 127, he says one of the goals of, of following Jesus is to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so salt preventing decay. So you as a Christian going into the world, you are meant to bring life rather than death. And so we are called to step out and do that. And then he gives uh, another example. Well, first he says, you know, if salt loses its saltiness, which again, right, don't think scientifically there, but his point is simply this. If you are salt and you have no salt in you, then what, what good are you? You've lost your purpose. So, so be salt to the world. And then he says, you are light of the world. And now again, I think this is maybe something we don't think of too often because when you walk into a dark room, what do you do? You just turn the light switch on, right? Now, what, if you do, what do you do if you're a millennial? You pull out your phone and you press your flashlight, right? <laughs> like you don't ever have to be in the dark unless your battery dies. We just, this is just a part of our world that I don't think we understand in the same way unless you've had that experience maybe while you're camping on a cloudy night. I remember one time when I was a kid, now, let me just say here, I, I sleepwalk, which is something Shayla probably would have liked to know before we got married, but um, as a kid, I remember uh, I was having a dream that I was in like a submarine or something, and very logically, I needed to go out of my bedroom door to open the hatch, get out, right? It makes perfect sense. Don't, don't, uh, don't get hung up there, and, uh, and I was so asleep, and it was so dark, and I was so confused that I couldn't find the door, and I remember I was, I don't know how old I was. We'll say I was really young, so it's not embarrassing. Uh, I was ended up in my closet screaming for my parents because I couldn't figure out how to get out of the submarine. And they were very confused, running downstairs. But then what happened when the light turned on? Well, in this case, I woke up. But what happens if you're trying to get out of something and the light turns on? Oh, there's the door. It's so, so simple. We used to play a game with the, the youth group to kind of illustrate this when we were in youth ministry. We'd take a flashlight and we'd unscrew it and take the top off and the bottom off and the two batteries out. And we put it like maybe on a stage like this that was just empty, turn all the lights out and put them in very obvious places. And then we would laugh at how long it takes them to sort their way through this and try and build this flashlight. Whereas if the light was on, how long would it take them to do that? It'd just be obvious. We sometimes think of it maybe not in the same context that they did when if they were out, if they didn't have oil for their lamp, if they were at home and it was dark and they didn't have the ability to turn on the lights, you just sat in darkness. That was just the only option you had. But Jesus has kind of a, a more spiritual idea in mind here. And in John eight twelve, he says it even more clearly. He says this way, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You as a Christian, and he says it, right? You're the light of the world. So don't, don't light the lamp and then put it under a basket, but put it on a stand and give light to the whole house. In other words, you as a Christian are meant to permeate society with Christ's light. People are walking in darkness. They're not sure where to turn. There's hopelessness, there's confusion, there's uncertainty, and, and for some, there's just an, they just don't know. And we're called to be light in that same way, to walk around them and to show them what dangers are around them, 
to show them what really matters, what's really true, and what has lasting value and impact. And we can only do that as we permeate that light that Jesus is in our hearts. And you're going to hear this a lot in the coming uh, weeks, but we have been given the Holy Spirit so that we can shine the light of Christ so others can see it. The Holy Spirit is key in all of these things. Uh, Leon Morris writes it this way. He says, the very purpose of being a follower of Jesus is to give light. Giving light is not an option, so to speak, which the disciple may or may not choose. It is part of being a disciple, just as much part of discipleship as giving light is of a light and light. He, he concludes by saying this. There is to be no parade of virtue and no attempt to win praise for oneself. Because Jesus says this, when others see that light, when they see your good works, what will they do? What does it say in verse 16? Who will they give glory to? To God who's in heaven. This is not about us casting light back on us saying, look, look how good we are. If you do that, the opposite thing's probably going to happen, right? Because the reality is, is we still fight the sin nature that's in us. We still fight selfishness and greed, and we still do things that, that don't benefit others, that only benefit ourselves. And so if we try to cast the light only at us and say, look, follow me, people are going to go, I don't need to follow you. Like you got nothing I have that I need to, or that you have nothing to offer me in that sense. But if what we're doing is we're showing that look at the difference that Christ can make in our life, and yes, I make mistakes, and yes, I do things I shouldn't, and I still struggle with sin, but look at the difference that God can make in my life, and look at the light that he can light my path with so that I know which way I'm going and which way I'm headed. You're the light of the world. Permeate the world with that light. And then Jesus clarifies, and I'm going to spend most of our time here because I think this has the most significant implications. Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Why, why would he have to say that? Why would he have to clarify that? I think really what's happening here is over the course of Jesus' ministry. Now remember, um, the Gospels are not always written strictly chronologically. And so sometimes we think of this as the very, very beginning of Jesus' ministry, but he's already called the disciples. He's already teaching his disciples, and not only the 12, but many others as well. And so how Jesus is living, how Jesus is teaching, there are people clearly that are going, this doesn't line up with what the scribes and the Pharisees have taught us. This isn't the same thing. There's confusion. And so they, they were basically saying, you, you're, you're abolishing or you're trying to throw away the law. That was the argument that was coming to them. And, and we're going to spend the next few weeks clarifying uh, why Jesus isn't doing that, right? So we're going to talk about anger and lust and divorce, many of these things that were in the Old Testament law that Jesus is going to clarify, not because he's throwing them away, but because they misunderstood them. And so in the same way Jesus says here, I, I haven't come to abolish them. I haven't come to do away with the Old Testament or make it null and void, but I've come to fulfill it. And I think here's the biggest challenge, 
is when we hear that word fulfill, we kind of go, okay, so that means that all that matters now is Jesus, and so we'll just read the Gospels or maybe the New Testament, but we no longer need to read the Old Testament. I would say that's a grave mistake because it's only through the Old Testament that we can see how faithful God is, his promises of redemption, and how he was bringing about salvation, and then the life of Jesus starts to make incredible sense. So Craig Berg writes it again this way. He says, it's, it's inadequate to say either that none of the Old Testament applies unless it is explicitly reaffirmed, reaffirmed in the New, or that all of the Old Testament applies unless it is explicitly revoked in the New. Rather, all of the Old Testament remains normative and relevant for the follower of Jesus. And he quotes 2 Timothy 3.16, which we're going to read in a moment. And then he finishes by saying this, but none of, none of this can be rightly interpreted until one how it has been fulfilled in Christ. If we're confused about the Old Testament, because we don't see it in, re- in light of the fulfillment of Jesus, and there are confusing things in it, there's, there's lots of things that need lots of study and lots of meditation and rereading so that we start to understand it, but it has to be done through the filter of Jesus. But Jesus is not saying the Old Testament is irrelevant. This 2 Timothy 3.16, we'll have it up here on the screen, but this is a verse that Paul writes to, uh, to Timothy, to the church in Ephesus. He says this, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. What scripture is he talking about? The Old Testament. How do we know that? Because the New Testament isn't written yet. Right? It's not distributed. So maybe, maybe one or two of the Gospels are kind of floating around and people have heard them being read. But what we know is the New Testament. And, and often people will go, man, 2 Timothy 3.16, this proves that the New Testament is real or that it's true. But that's not even Paul's point at all. He's pointing back to the Old Testament, even post-resurrection saying all of it is useful for reproof, for correction, for training that we would understand how to be men and women of God, that we would become mature in Christ. There's a book in the New Testament called Hebrews. And Hebrews is written to a group of uh, Messianic Jews, I guess you could say, uh, Jewish people who have confessed Christ as Messiah, but they're going back into their old ways of doing the law because they have misunderstood or or only partly understood the relevance of Jesus and what is happening in the New Testament through him. And so the writer, uh, they call him the pastor, many theologians, as he writes that letter to the Hebrews, he keeps reminding them, don't go back to that. That was pointing to Jesus. Now, he's not saying throw it all away. He's saying the way that you understood that needs to change in light of the fulfillment of Jesus. That's what Jesus says himself here. I've not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. And he doubles down and he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So iota and dot, just the smallest characters in the Greek and Hebrew language. So he's just trying to be very clear with them. But but listen to it again. Until heaven and earth pass away. When is that? That's the very end, isn't it? When the new heavens and the new earth are brought down, created, 
complicated, however your theological eschatology uh, views that, is when the end comes, when Christ returns and the new heavens and new earth there, then there will be no need for a law any longer. Why not? Because there'll be no more sin. Our sin nature will have been eradicated from us and we will receive a new glorified body whether we have passed on already or whether we're still alive at the second coming of Christ. And so we'll no longer need to be told, you shouldn't kill people. We'll know that because we know that every man and woman is created in the image of God and that God loves them and we will treat them the way that family should treat one another. And so Jesus is saying very clearly here, until that, none of, it will be pa- none of it will pass from the law. But so often people try and take these verses and then kind of twist them to try and make sense of a theology that they already adhere to rather than simply listening to what Jesus is saying because it's not complicated. In fact, he gives a warning. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to clarify this. There's only one way into the presence of Jesus. And that is if we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's through Jesus' finished work on the cross that we find salvation. And so that's the only essential thing that we have to believe. If you're on your deathbed and you cry out in genuine repentance and ask Christ to forgive you, you are saved. I've said this before, but Shayla and I went to a seminar with Um, Sean McDowell, who was talking about kind of creation, evolution, talking about various ways uh, to interpret the the Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And at the end of it, he said something very, very, well, probably more like in the middle, said something that stuck with me. said, when you get kind of, if you imagine it, when you get to Peter's, St. Peter's gates, right? And it's like, why should I get to go into heaven? Christ is not going to look at you and say, did you hold to this view of creation? or this view of creation, he's going to say, did you confess Jesus Christ as Savior? That's it. And so that's what salvation is. So here, when he says, if you teach others to relax these, if you relax them and teach others, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. It's not as though you've lost your salvation because it's only through Jesus' blood that you're saved. But Jesus does warn us that there's significance here that we can't just go, man, that's all I need to believe. Now I can just live however I want. I can just believe whatever I want. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's trying to show that, look, I'm going to, and we're going to, in these next chapters, clarify, reinterpret, re-understand the law based on the fulfillment of Jesus. Or as Leon Morris writes it, uh, Jesus came to fulfill it, not do away with it. If the law is fulfilled, it cannot be on that account set aside. Fulfillment can only confirm the Torah's truth or the law's truth. It cannot cast doubt upon it. Jesus displaces the law only in the sense that he now becomes the focal point. That's how we should understand the law. So when we read anything in the Old Testament that we can't wrap our minds around, we've got to figure it out with Jesus as the centerpiece of that. That doesn't mean that that's easy or that comes quickly. It's not like a cheat code for you to open up and go, oh, now I get it. It takes work. It takes study. It takes meditation. But as we do that, we'll start to really understand that all these things that Jesus is going to clarify for us, we'll go, oh, that's why he says it that way. 
That's why he's clarifying these things. It's going to all just start to become very, very obvious to us. Michael J. Wilkins, another commentator, said this, Jesus demands a commitment to both the least and the greatest commandments, yet condemns those who refuse the two. The entire Old Testament is the expression of God's will, but is now to be taught according to Jesus' interpretations of it, of its intent and its meaning. Now again, I'm not, we haven't yet started to read what Jesus is going to say where he says, you've heard it said this, and then he's going to clarify. We'll get into that in the moments, and it might sound like I'm kind of berating this point, but I think it's essential for us to understand if we want to be in a right relationship and a healthy relationship and a growing relationship with Jesus, we need to understand this sentence that he gives or this, this paragraph that he tells us and the warnings that come with it. One scholar that I read, or actually that I heard this week as he was talking about this, he brought it to the end of Matthew, and we've talked about this already, but where the Great Commission comes in, and Jesus says, go into the world, right? All authority's been given into me, so go into the world and make disciples, baptize them, and, and we have it in our English translation, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This commentator argues that really what Jesus is saying to his disciples is this, teach, or teaching you to obey everything I told you in the Sermon on the Mount. Because that's what he says. Is the teachings that Jesus gives specifically here in the Sermon on the Mount, he reiterates over and over and over through the rest of his life, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so if we relax some of these things or say, well, that's not really what Jesus meant, and we try and overanalyze it or or kind of super spiritually talk about it in some context that doesn't make any sense. All we're doing is we're ignoring the very clear words of Jesus. Many commentators that I read uh, in the last number of weeks have said, this sermon is very devastating because it's so intense. Jesus is calling us to a very high standard. And he actually finishes it by saying it in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I got to confess, that verse didn't make a lot of sense to me for a long time. I really struggled. What is, what is Jesus trying to get at? What's he saying? Well, again, Wilkins said this way, and this is really helpful. He says, Jesus calls his disciples to a different kind of righteousness than that of the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees took pride in outward conformity to many extra-biblical regulations, but they still had impure hearts. Kingdom righteousness works from the inside out because it first produces changed hearts and new motivations so that the actual conduct of Jesus' followers does, in fact, exceed the righteousness and the scribes of the Pharisees. It's not just about obeying rules. It's about falling in love with Jesus. And as we learn and understand who he is and what he has called us to do, it's not this, man, I have to do this to get into heaven. That's not the point. Only through Jesus' blood can we find salvation. Only through the redemption of Jesus' blood on the cross and us accepting that sacrifice. But when we do that, when we learn who Jesus is, we begin to change how we live. Those of you who are married, you understand this just inherently is when you got married, there were certain parts of your spouse that you knew really well, and there was lots that you thought you knew that you didn't know yet. 
And as you develop that relationship and you learn more about one another, the goal should be, if we're willing to lift up our own defenses and be vulnerable enough to admit that I need help and that I don't have it all together, we start to grow in this relationship where we both help and build and encourage each other. And so it's not, man, it's Shayla's birthday coming up. Oh, I guess I have to go buy her something. It's this joy of, I want to celebrate this woman. And I'm excited to do this for her because I care for her and I love her. That sounds like the exact opposite of legalism, doesn't it? It's a privilege. It's a joy. It's something that we're excited to. And if we're following Christ's commands going, man, ah, this is so hard and I, gotta, I have to do this so that I can get to heaven, then we haven't understood the offer that Christ has made to us for salvation. But if we have understood it, we start to realize just how small we are, how big he is, and yet the smaller we get, the more amazing we realize his love and his grace and his compassion is for us. I deserve nothing from God, and yet he loves me as his son, and he loves you as his son or as his daughter, and he wants to be in relationship with you, and as your motivations change and you start to become someone like the Beatitudes, It's not about obeying, it's about a relationship. It's about loving and caring for. And suddenly our righteousness is not our own, but it's the righteousness of Christ through us. So again, we're going to say this lots in the coming weeks. But you and I, if you have confessed Jesus as your Savior, you are actually equipped in a unique way to follow Jesus more than anyone in Scripture. In the Old Testament, They didn't have the Spirit, at least not in a permanent way. If you have confessed Jesus as Savior, you do have the Spirit. And He will convict you of righteousness, and He will show you how to live, and He will bring about desires in your hearts for good and to help others and to care for others. And then He'll equip you to actually do that. So that's actually the greatest news I think we can have. It's not about me and my ability to follow. It's about what Christ has done for me and how he's now carrying me through that journey. As we close here this morning, uh, I'm going to show a video. We showed this last summer as well as we talked about what it means to follow uh, the Old Testament, what it means to follow the law. And I just want you to consider, it's only six minutes long, but really consider what it means to live this life as, as a new kind of human, one that is given the Holy Spirit and one that can show the world what it means to follow after Christ. This is not a free-for-all where you get to just do whatever you want. This is a relationship with Jesus which then dictates, man, I want to follow after him. So let's watch and then I'll come up and close in prayer. You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder... Am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story 
to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family, who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, No, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention, because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws, and then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land, they break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem, and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there, to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God 
to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others. And he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's Spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. 